Hello, women of strength. We have an amazing episode for you today, but first I want to talk just a little bit about postpartum depression. Studies show that one in seven new mamas will develop postpartum depression. It's scary in a topic that doesn't really get discussed about a lot. So before we jump into today's episode, I wanted to share a little bit about our podcast sponsor and partner, Happiest Baby. As you guys know from listening to the VBAC link, this podcast means so much to me. I love every single one of you. I know that's hard to believe because I don't personally know every single one of you, but it is true. I love this community so much, and it means so much to me that Dr. Harvey Karp and his company, Happiest Baby, are such big supporters of VBAC and are supporting our mission. One of their biggest products that people may know or have heard of is called the Snoo. The Snoo is an amazing baby bed that can truly help many mamas out there during their postpartum journey, especially if you were like me and have a husband or a partner that has to go right back to work and are left with these amazing, cute, snuggly babies, but also exhausted. Whether you've had a C-section or a vaginal birth for those few days, and let's be honest, probably months, you're just exhausted. I was in pure survival mode. So many people refer to this new as the mama helper, who's there to help soothe your baby so you can just get a few more hours of sleep. They even have a rental program, which I think is pretty awesome, so you don't actually have to buy the bassinet. As I started learning more about Dr. Carp and his mission, I just love learning that he is so passionate about reducing postpartum depression in parents. They even got FDA approval, which I believe is the only bassinet or baby bed that has been FDA approved. It's also been known for reducing SIDS in babies as well. I asked our community for their reviews of Snoo, and I was overwhelmed by the positive responses. I just wanted to say thank you to Dr. Carp for creating the Snoo and helping millions of mamas sleep for just a few more hours at night so we can continue bonding with our babies and having a better postpartum experience. Thank you, happiest baby. Hello, hello. Happy Wednesday, Women of Strength. We are bringing another story to you. You are listening to the VBAC link, and we have our friend Morgan here today sharing her stories. And I'm really excited because just before we started recording, we kind of talked about how Morgan, she's like, I am a numbers girl. Like, I love numbers. And it's something that I love too, but never have ever retained as well as Julie did. Julie was always like, I'd be like, okay, I'm trying to remember, is it this or that? And she'd be like, it's this. Like she just remained, like I remember names and, and stuff like that. And she remembers numbers. And so that has been something that I have really missed, um, without Julie being here. And so I'm excited to talk about numbers with you today, Morgan, and how, I mean, we, we're going to talk specifically maybe about amniotic fluid and percentages and things like that. But yeah, I'm excited to get into some numbers. So if you're looking for some numbers on chances of VBAC, and maybe we're going to talk about the amniotic fluid and what really is a scary number and when do we really need to induce a labor, stay tuned. But of course, we have a review of the week. So before I turn the time over to Morgan, we will read BR it JL14. <laughs> that is their review today. And the subject is Tears of Joy. It says, I literally got teary-eyed when I saw your podcast was coming back. You gave me the courage to have my V back after two cesarean baby, nine pounds, 15 ounces, late August. Such an uplifting and informative podcast. I tell everyone who mentions wanting a VBAC to look this up. So excited for more to come. Oh, I love that. You guys, when we decided to bring the podcast back, it was so exciting for us too. Like so, so exciting. And it was, but it was so fun to get all the emails and the messages on Instagram saying like, oh, we've been waiting because we really, we took a 10 month break a 10 month break, but, um, you know, that's what we needed to do for our personal lives, but we are so happy. I guess I am so happy to be back. I definitely miss Julie every time that I'm recording. 
but I'm really so happy to be back and so honored to be a part of all of these beautiful stories, you know, because really, I wish I had this when I was preparing for my VDAC. I really do. I I, I go back, this probably sounds silly because I'm recording the stories and I'm hearing the stories, but then every week I go in and I listen to the stories because I am learning even things after recording it and hearing it the first time, a second time. I'm learning things about births or certain things that had happened or procedures. And so it's always a learning experience, even for me who, you know, quote unquote, uh, is specializing in VBAC. And so it's really, really fun. So yeah, so thank you so much for review. And remember, if you have not had a chance to leave us a review, we love them. We always, always, always read them and add them into our queue to read on a podcast. You are tuned into the VBAC Link podcast with Megan Heaton, who is a longtime doula and VBAC mom herself, here to help you get inspired for birth after having had a C-section. Along with this podcast, the VBAC Link offers blogs, resources, and a comprehensive VBAC course for both parents preparing for birth and doulas wanting to take their VBAC education to the next level. Be sure to follow Megan and her team on all social media platforms for even more. Although these podcast episodes are VBAC specific, it is encouraged for all expectant moms to listen and educate themselves on how to avoid a C-section from the get-go. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is not meant to replace advice from any other qualified medical professional. Here is your host, Megan. Hi, birth workers. This one's for you. In an ideal world, VBAC parents would be treated just like any other birthing parents. In today's world, most medical providers sadly don't fully support VBAC parents. However, 90% of parents with a prior cesarean are good candidates to attempt a VBAC. This is why we have created the Advanced VBAC Doula Certification Program. In this doula course, we share evidence-based data for you to educate your clients, teach you the tools on helping them how to process past fears and trauma, or helping them decide if VBAC is even right for them. You will feel better prepared to support them during this beautiful experience. All VBAC certified doulas are listed on our website so parents know who you are. To learn more, go to the VBAClink.com. Okay, Morgan. Hello. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for being here all the way from Alaska. Yes. Yes. That is you so know. awesome. So awesome. Well, I'd love to turn the time over to you um, to share your story. And I feel like, I guess it's actually, was it your second, your second birth story, technically? My Third, my third. Yeah. My second was oh, the C-section. I was thinking, well, yeah. Sorry. So that's what I'm talking about. The C-section, your second birth story. You know, I, I also want to talk about, because it was a very valid cesarean. It was. Yes. Right. And I yeah. want to talk about that too, because we can come across as so negative with cesarean because we're sharing, it's a VBAC podcast and we're sharing a cesarean story that led to a VBAC. But a lot of the times the, the cesareans were negative or unneeded or undesired or unplanned, right? And so sometimes it can come across as we're we're talking bad about cesareans. But I want to point out today with Morgan's story, especially like very, very needed. And we're so grateful for cesareans too. So even though we are a pro VBAC podcast, we're not anti-doc, anti-cesarean. That is for sure. So I will let you, you know, share your story, but I just kind of want to talk about that because sometimes I think it can be like, wow, like this podcast hates cesareans. Um, and that's not the case. It's not the case at all. Right. Yeah. So I have three, uh, three kids now and my first uh, uh, vaginal birth and, and it was, it was mostly pretty well, pretty well, like sought out and gone, went, went through as expected, right? It was uh, 41 and five mm-hmm. and everything went pretty well. I did have some retained placenta at the end. And so we, I had to go back in for a DNC at like six or seven weeks, six weeks postpartum because we hadn't caught that before. And then my second pregnancy was a really good pregnancy. I was healthy. I was working. Everything was going as expected, except my son Cooper was transverse and he would not budge. I tried so many things to have him budge. I was doing spinning babies. I went to the chiropractor. I could not find an acupuncturist where I was that I, that I like trusted and was ready to go to, but yeah, me, man, we tried so many things to, to get him to turn and it wouldn't work. So 
you know, towards the end, my doctor and I had discussed doing a version. And the, mm-hmm. to me, like we had discussed the risks of it were having a C-section at the end, but that's what we were going in and trying to like kind of avoid anyways. So the risks weren't bothering me at that point. So we did, we did end up trying a version and it worked. It was very exciting, but then he turned back and I was like, Oh no, it was devastating. It was so devastating. Yeah. So yeah, oh, so that, that was, would be that was one version and he turned back. And so the doctor had said, oh, man, and she was right with me on my birth plan too. She was there. She was ready to go. She said, well, let's try another one. And I was like, okay, like, let's do it. I went through it. I got through the first one. It was uncomfortable, but we did it. And, uh, and so the second one, we tried another one and sure enough, he turned and we're like, yes, we just got to keep him there. So I was like standing up all day. Like, I'm not going to move. I'm just going to stay in. And, uh, and he, uh, he turned back and I felt him turn back. And I was like, Oh, Oh. version, a second, a second successful version that then turned back. Um, And after that, we were coming up on our due date and, and I was just so adamant about wanting a a vaginal birth uh, at that point that I said, you know what, why don't we try a third version and we'll just induce Mm -hmm. right after that. And maybe I won't get my unmedicated birth, but I'll get, I'll still have a vaginal delivery which yeah. for me was important because I wanted to be able to, to breastfeed without any concerns. So we tried, we tried a third version and it was on my due date and we were in the hospital. And we we're ready to induce afterwards. You know, my doula was on call and we were going to call her in after I started laboring. Yeah. And in the middle of the version, we lost his heartbeat. So she had me connected with an ultrasound the whole time. So she's yeah. doing the version and there's a nurse that's doing the ultrasound and all of a sudden we had no heartbeat. And so she, she said, well, maybe it's just where we are. Let's move a little bit and see. And so I just, I had to turn and I moved and we tried to find the, uh, the heartbeat again and we, we couldn't find it. Mm -hmm. And so she said, just give me a second. And she walked out of the room. I was all the way in the back of the labor and delivery unit at that point. And she walked out of the room so calmly and she went into the hallway and she just yelled, we need help in here. And I was oh, like, whoa. whoa, I was not expecting that. And so what went from calm right in front of me went to massive emergency in the hallway. Yeah, and so like yeah. all the nurses descended in and the bed got moving and we went into the operating room and 20 minutes, it took 20 minutes because I didn't have an IV or anything connected to me at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so 20 minutes later, so you we weren't a, under a general anesthesia. They didn't put you under general. They did not. No, I saw it. I saw the whole thing. I, I mean, they had the, the, the yeah. cover up, yeah. right? But but there's so many reflective units and you yeah. know metal everywhere. I could actually see what was happening, which was fine. I don't yeah. mind that. But yeah, they they pulled him out 20 minutes later, and he was not breathing. No breathing, no heartbeat, anything. So they had to do, so um, they had to do CPR and uh, they got him back. The nurses got him back, which is just amazing. And he was rushed over to a NICU at another hospital, um, like the level, mm-hmm. the highest level NICU, I think. Like it's a, four. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So he went to a children's hospital where there was a, a massive NICU there and he's good. You know, Friday is his birthday and he'll be eight and it's, he's just an amazing little kid. Um, so, so I'm very, amazing. very grateful for that C-section. How, um, how was that for you? How was recovery for you? How, how recovery was, was fine. Um, yeah. and there was no, there were no like unplanned, uh, unexpected occurrences, right? Yeah. Like we knew it was going to take a little longer. We knew not to work. Yeah. The thing that, that kind of bothered, the thing that was hard was, well, first was breastfeeding because I had so much IV. I was going to ask about that. that mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I got really nervous because I, I was pumping, right? He was in a different hospital. And so yeah. I saw after like two or three days, I saw my levels go down drastically. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, what is this? What yeah. happened was the IV fluids had had left my system. And so then it was just my natural, you know, breastfeeding amount. And so I wasn't... Yeah. I was not expecting that, that drastic change. Yeah. Um, but once we figured out what that was and that was good. And then the second thing that was hard was him being in a NICU. So once I was discharged from the hospital, I was, I was driving back. I wasn't driving. My husband was driving back and forth from the home to the hospital. Luckily we were close enough, but having to, I could only sit, I couldn't lay right. That NICU, I couldn't lay. And so there was, 
there's a little bit of pain there. And then once we were ready to get him breastfeeding, I couldn't, I couldn't, we didn't have a room for us. He was still in the NICU. So I was sleeping outside in the guest area, like the waiting room, Um, you know, along with other, other families that were going through things like their kids and cancer and stuff. And there's nowhere for the parents to stay. So we're all like making tents in the waiting room. Um, oh, so that was, that was a little hard, hard for that recovery. That is really that hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That part was stressful, yeah. but once we were all home, it was good. It was yeah. good. How long was he yeah. in the NICU? He was there for 11 days. Okay. Um, and he, they put him, they were worried about brain damage. So it was oh, a hypothermic they treatment the that they put him on. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, so grateful that all is well. There must have been something. Um, it's so hard because my baby, he went, he kept going breach. Like she might have made would flip him and then boom, back breach, flip him, boom, back breach. And I same thing, I'd fill him and I'm like, what the heck? And she finally was like, We have to trust him. There's a reason why. We don't know. We don't know why. We don't understand it. But we have to trust yeah. him. And it's so hard. It's so hard. I mean, yeah, like, yeah. Because I was like, if I have to have a third cesarean because he's breach, I will be so mad. But right. yeah, that's so hard. But and that's but- that's so true. Like I think Cooper Cooper was telling us, I'm not supposed to be here. If I go this way, things are going to go bad. And sure enough, they did. Right? Like yeah. it, it, he tried twice, but then yeah, um, the yeah. dark time was too so, stressful for him. Yeah. It was too stressful. I think possibly maybe the umbilical cord got bent in a way Impressed. that no airflow could go through or something. We don't know. Yeah. But yeah, thank goodness for that C-section because it, it brought him back to us. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So then baby number three. Yeah. Baby number three. That was, that was five years later. We had had, um, we've had a, a lot of difficulties with some mer- miscarriages. And I, I didn't mention before I'm, I'm active duty Coast Guard and we were, I, I also am on the ships all the time. So you have to like kind of plan pregnancies around shipboard life. Oh um, my gosh. So yeah. <laughs> So there's, there's big, big time periods in between my kids. Right. Um, But, but baby number three was five years later and I wanted a VBAC from the start. I wanted an unmedicated VBAC. I knew, I knew I could do it. Right. Like after my first pregnancy where I was so close to being unmedicated and my, my second pregnancy being a C-section, I knew VBACs were available. I knew I could do it. And I just, I was so adamant on going down that route. And, and so with, with the Coast Guard, you don't really get to choose with any military. You don't really get to choose your provider. Um, mm. Most of the time we're in a, a military treatment facility. And I was very, very grateful to not be there. I had had some experiences, negative experiences in both the local ones. This was in Washington, D.C. in both yeah. the local um, MTFs at that time. And so getting to be on the, on the outside with the civilian provider was, was just amazing for me. I was very happy. And we were with um, the Inova hospital system at that time. So the, the provider, I went to the first appointment was at 10 weeks and I, I told him, you know, right then we had a great heartbeat, everything was going well. And I was like, I'm going to have a feedback um, mm-hmm. with this child. And he said, okay, I am, I am good to go on that. So it, you know, exactly what we were expecting. And I would never have expected him to say otherwise at that, you know, at that point, I'm like, yeah, vaginal birth is is clearly the way to go. And with, without any sort of condition saying otherwise. Yeah. So, you know, the pregnancy, yeah, the pregnancy progressed. And I guess I should mention I was 40 at this time. Right. So my second, my second child, so Cooper, he was, I was 35 or 36 when I had him. So I was in that high risk stage just for age at that point. Yes. And so of course I'm there now at 40 and we, you know, it, everything was fine. The pregnancy progressed, everything was going well at some point, you know, mid midway through, we were looking at what the, what's the position the baby's in and, and she was breech. And I was not happy about that. And he was like, it's okay. It's okay. And I was like, well, knowing my, knowing what happened with Cooper, yes. So at this point, I, I didn't, I didn't go for a chiropractor at this point, but I did, I did learn that there was a wonderful acupuncturist in the area that had really great success with turning babies. And so I went to him 
And uh, it was like a three hour session. And I actually felt her move in the session. It was just amazing. I couldn't believe it. It was so cool. I'm like, I I feel her moving. And so she did, she turned a whole 180 at that point. And then he, he left us with homework. He called it hot, hot sticks where you have to like burn this incense over your pinky toe. And Uh, yeah, um, the bladder six. Yeah. (laughs) It's so funny. Um, He was like, it's so you know, my husband would do it. And the acupuncturist said, you don't take it away when she says hot, you take it away when she's like, hot, 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 hot. Uh, and so that's why she calls hot, them, hot, she sticks. Called them hot, hot sticks. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I have um, actually seen that work though. Uh, like the baby flip with, with those things, like it's called. Yeah. Sticks. yeah it's really cool. Okay. Okay. So we, we did that. I mean, he's like, you have to do this every day and we continued to do it. So it, it was great. I mean, I, I speak wonders about his service um, in the DC area. And so that worked. And then we, and we go back to the doctor and around 30 weeks, he started saying, okay, we need to schedule your C-section. And I was like, why? No, like we don't need to schedule a C-section. He goes, well, you had one. So we just need to schedule. I said, I'm doing a VBAC. Like we talked about this. Yeah, from remember the at 10 weeks? And yeah. <laughs> right. Right. And he said, well, just in case. And I was <sighs> like, well, why can't we just induce? Just like there are many steps between, to me, there are many steps between yes. a vaginal delivery and a C-section yes. and, and scheduling a C-section, I should say. Right. But, and so he said, he taught me then we don't induce with VBACs, like there's mm-hmm. no Pitocin. And, you know, later on in the story, I found out that, that that's not exactly accurate. Some doctors will do it, but he wouldn't. And so that, that appointment was leading us down the road of research and just starting to learn for me to learn more about how to advocate and how ACOG and, and, you know, obstetricians and gynecologists work in their network and what their risk levels are and mm-hmm. how important being able to talk to them in their language was. Yeah. So, you know, he, he said, we're going to schedule a C-section for 37 weeks. And Whoa, I was floored. 37 was weeks? Floored. Yes. I was like, this wow. isn't even a full-term baby. Like, uh, no, 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 no. He goes, well, this is when we do it. It's just easier. And, and if you want to be back, as long as you go into labor before the C-section, 37 weeks. we're good. How rare is it that people go into, I mean, it happens, obviously we know this, but it's not very common that the body just spontaneously goes into labor before 37 weeks. And then we have a baby going into labor at 37 weeks. And we're concerned because before 37 weeks, we're not full term. Exactly. I was was like, no, 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 no. I was so Hmm. upset after that appointment. And I was like, this is, first off, my body would never go into labor before that. I mean, sure, I'm speaking in exacts, but you know, Didn't you my say first you were a 41 five, <laughs> right? 41 yeah. five for my first, yeah. <laughs> and my second, he didn't. I had no contractions. I mean, he was transverse, but I had no contractions before 40 weeks. Yeah. So there was, yeah, I'm was like, there's no date. way my kids are coming early. Yeah. Um, that's that's just proven to be wrong for my body so far. So. You know, I left that appointment and I was really frustrated with it. And I started doing work, you know, I started doing research on where are our risks, what are the risks and getting me familiar with it. And I started being in that defensive zone where I was having to prove. So I found your website, I found your Um, blog and I started listening to every single episode. I mean, it just gave me so much knowledge on where to look and and what to look out for and like the bait and switch that you were calling it i was like oh this is me this is what's mm-hmm. happening and so i did i i research and defenses were up um at that point which is unfortunate right because you don't want to be in a defensive situation unfortunate. yeah exactly and mm-hmm. it's like it's so hard because again like we've talked about this on the podcast like we don't want to we don't want to have to walk in with our arms up right? We don't want to have to like be ready to punch. It's not what we should be doing. Like we just want it to be a nice cohesive, like every like providers listening to us, us listening to the provider. Cause it's also important for us to listen to the provider. You know, they did go to medical school for a reason, but at the same time, we also have to know that sometimes what those providers are saying is maybe skewed based off of their own experience or 
maybe whatever. I don't know. We've had providers right, tell people right. that they have a 30% chance of rupturing, you know, and it's after one cesarean. And so we just, we have to still be aware that there's, there's more information, but we should never feel like we always have to have our wall up and our punching, you know, our punching bag. I meant to say our fists ready. Like it just it shouldn't be like that. And it is, it's unfortunate that sometimes it is. Right. Right. And, and so after that appointment, I was, I had already known I wanted a doula, but I was adamant about giving a doula um, mm-hmm. with this uh, with this one uh, as well. And and I found one, and she was amazing. And she had uh, she had been a doula for VBAC before, and so she had also pointed me towards research and was mm-hmm. ready to help me. And she really was she was awesome through this whole event, the whole birth. But we we continued to you know time continued to progress, and I remember going and taking my older kids to Chuck E. Cheese one day. And I, you know, they're off doing their thing with the, with all the arcade games and I'm on my phone and I'm listening to podcasts and I'm scrolling through ACOG research. And I'm like, I don't want just the bulletin. I want the research behind it. Like, mm-hmm. and I'm doing all this on my phone, trying to find it all. And, and I found it, I found what I was looking for. And it was, it was not just the risk of a VBAC and the risk of a, a second C-section. It was what happens when a person has already had a vaginal birth and right, it's a conditional, it's conditional probability, right? I'm a numbers person. And so I, I had already had a vaginal birth. And so then it looks at what are, what are those risks for a person to have a VBAC and a person have a C-section? And when a person had already had a vaginal birth, the risks for uterine rupture, the risk for um, mortality, all of those were actually so far below what are are just like the normal risk levels. They were actually below your first birth, right? So if you're a first time mom and you're having a first time vaginal birth and you still have the mortality risk and you still have uterine rupture risk, my risk was lower than that because I had already had a successful vaginal birth. And Mm -hmm. so I was, those are the risk levels he's working on. I'm using his research and yeah. I, I was like, no, no, no. Like, you can't tell me my risk levels are extraordinarily high when your own research that you're following tells me I'm actually Otherwise, safer, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm in a less risk stance now than I was when I had my first child. So, so I was even more adamant at that point to go towards a VBAC. And I told him, I will not have a C-section at 37 weeks. Um, I think it was, it was your podcast that helped me advocate for myself um, Mm. in terms of, of standing up to a doctor, right? I have, I've advocated in many other situations, right? Like law enforcement, again, you know, schools, whatever, but, um, but doctors were a whole new ballgame for me. And, and to be able to say, this is my right. And this is my voice. And I get to make this decision was a little intimidating before. And I, I, you know, (laughs) and I learned how how to do it. And so we, over the course of, I don't know, three or four weeks, uh, you know, weekly appointments at that point, I had rescheduled and rescheduled and rescheduled until finally I got him to 41 weeks for a C-section. And that was with the threat of going to another provider who I, I did go see on my own who was willing to, you know, induce induce with a mild amount of Pitocin was Mm -hmm. willing to wait until 41 and four for a C-section and was like, yeah, you're completely, you know, they were just on board with the concept of it. So I had gone to see them and the unfortunate part was they were not in network. And so Mm -hmm. I couldn't, while I could pay a little bit of that bill, I couldn't pay the Full the what if what part it of it, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Like what happens if mm-hmm. things go bad and I have to be in the hospital? All yes. of that wouldn't have been covered. Yes. And that which is so hard. Tens of thousands. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. so hard so, when we are restricted with by insurance. Yes. And I was. I mean, Tricare is very restrictive. Like you don't get to go choose another doctor just because you don't like this one on Tricare Prime, right? You're you're stuck. And I was. And so I, I went back to him and I said, I don't want to be here right now, but mm. I can't be anywhere else. I can walk into an emergency room and have a birth that way. And I was totally fine on doing that. And so I told him, this is where I am. I am not mm. happy with your, your care for me right now. I don't yeah. think you're listening to me. And I've seen another provider that tells me this is possible. 
And I also know that there's a wonderfully VBAC friendly hospital in Washington, DC, and I will easily drive right past yours to go to that emergency room mm-hmm. um, if I need to, because that's where I was kind of bound within our insurance means. Uh-huh. Yeah. And he listened, he listened then. And he said, okay, so that's where 41 weeks came. And he did though say, I'm not going to give you Pitocin. Um, mm. And that, and I did learn that that was his decision, right? He yeah, felt you have that to that respect was, he, that. Yes, yes. That's his opinion. Right. Yeah. He, he gets to determine what on his, in his mind is safe. And he thought a C-section is safe. He did not think a Pitocin would be safe. Uh-huh. So I was like, fine, that's fine. But we waited. So we waited to 41 weeks for a C-section. And then, uh, you know, through that time period, I continued with the monitoring appointments that they, you know, they want high risk women to do. So twice, two times weekly, I was going into the hospital, not, so not his mm-hmm. appointment area, but the hospital where they had a wellness clinic and, and stuff. Yes. All the non-stress tests. And so it was the non-stress testing 20 minutes of checking the heartbeat and stuff. And then, and then always a, a ultrasound as well, where we're, they were checking the amniotic fluid levels. And after all of these things got done, so it took about an hour I would meet with the doctor who would go over the information with me. And that was one-on-one time. And Mm -hmm. I think it was, there were like three or four doctors that were always there doing all the work. And I ended up getting to see this one doctor pretty regularly. And she was, she was great in, in answering my questions. So I asked her all the time, where are your numbers for amniotic fluid? Where is, you're telling me I have an amniotic fluid level. So, you know, in my world of work with the Coast Guard, if there's a number then mm-hmm. that means there's a, a risk level if it goes too high or too low. So I want to mm-hmm. know where your levels are, right? Yeah. If you're giving me a number on amniotic fluid, what's the yeah. high level? What's the low level? And so they told me, they said the low level was 5.5. And I have no idea what the measures of unit are, but I know 5.5. So we, um, you know, I kept going and kept going and everything was always perfect. And Friday uh, around 40 weeks, she was starting to get worried and wanting, starting to get worried about a VBAC. And this is again, a different doctor. Yeah. And at that point I had, I had already gotten my membrane stripped once and I was uh, dilated to one and I was still up a little higher. So there was no movement. There were no contractions, nothing. And, but everything was still fine. All the levels were still fine. And on that Friday, my amniotic fluid level was a nine. And so it, it had dropped, I think, by two, it was 11 earlier in that week. And by, yeah. by that Friday, it was a nine and I had been busy, uh, but it was still above the 5.5 and everything was fine. And she said, we should admit you. And I said, well, what are you going to do if you admit me? And they couldn't, they're not, in, they're not willing, they're not willing to give you Pitocin. So they're not willing right. to induce your labor. So right. what is admitting going to do other than I guess, signing up for the cesarean at that point? Right, right. And so I'm like, are you going to let me just sit there in a room for days on end until I go into labor naturally? And yeah. she, there, is there a time limit for that? And she couldn't answer those questions. And so I said, you know, I'm, I'm okay. I'm going to go home. Yeah. Um, and so we went, we agreed that I would come back on Monday. I would do a lot of, a lot of, I don't know, drinking water and Gatorade. And I would come back in on Monday mm-hmm. and see if that changed my amniotic fluid level. So I did, I came back in first thing on Monday and everything again was fine in terms of how they had prescribed the numbers to me ahead of time. So fetal kick counts, fine. You know, heart, baby's heartbeat, fine. The non-stress test, everything there was fine. Amniotic fluid level was at a seven. So it had gone back down a little bit further, but it was still above the 5.5. So at this point, she called in the on-call doctor for my providers group, which was another female. And we said, let's just do another check uh, right here to see if I'm dilated any further. And I was okay with that. So she did. And I hadn't dilated any further, but the baby had dropped some at that point. So I was happy with that because, you know, the the baby needs to drop first before you start dilating. That kind of helps it. And but they, they didn't see that as anything. They were only looking at dilation. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, I'm, I'm good. I don't feel like I need to be here. Everything is fine. You know? And they said, well, you yeah. haven't started dilating further. And 
I'm like, well, it's not like you dilate, you know, 10 centimeters over the course of 10 weeks. That's not how this works. No, we're having this weird conversation where they're like telling me I'm, I'm in, I'm in trouble and, and I'm just not seeing it. There's no urgency in their voice. Yes. There's no actual concern in any of the testing that was happening and again, like I, I'm asking again, well, what are you going to do if you admit me today? And they, again, can't tell me an answer. And so I said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go make a call. And so I called my doula and we had a long conversation. And at that point, we really thought if I had to go back again on Tuesday or Wednesday, like I wasn't going to, it was just going to get worse with them urging me and urging me. And how yes. much stress do I want to add on for me to do that? And, exactly. Um, and we were getting close to that 41 week, like section date at that point. And so even doing all the things, right. All the induction things that you, you do, you know, you're, you're pumping and you're doing the raspberry walking, leaf tea and yeah. all, all of the walking, everything, nothing had, nothing had changed. Right. And so I, I went back into the doctor and I said, I am not going to be admitted today. I'm going to go home. And then we went home and and we went to our last resort of induction, which was taking the Cytotec, uh, that that weird, horrible tasting stuff. It's castor not Cytotec. Oil? It's, past, it's castor, castor oil. oil. Castor oil. Yeah. Taking castor oil. And um, Cytotec's that horrible drug that induces miscarriage. It was castor oil. And uh, and so I did two tablespoons of castor oil in a milkshake with, uh, it was Ben and Jerry's peanut butter, right? I wanted like a really strong, intense taste to get yes. rid of that castor oil. Yes. <laughs> and I told our doctor ahead of time that I was probably going to do that. So I wasn't, I wasn't trying to hide it. Yeah. Um, you weren't sneaking around. Yeah. No, no, no. And so I did. I, that was what I had for dinner that night at six 30 and at 10 30, I had to go to the bathroom and at 11 30 contractions started and mm. it was, um, you know, and so we're home and, and the kids, both boys are in bed at that point and we're having, you know, we're just in labor and, I, I went to the bathroom a few times at some point I said, I really want to be in the bath. So I went to the bath and, you know, had a nice warm bath and I stayed in the bathtub probably for 45 minutes or so. And then I said, Oh, I need to go to the bathroom again. And that was when I felt like it, it probably felt like pushing at that point, like starting to push, but we weren't sure if it was still the remnants of castor oil <laughs> or oh, if, it was, yeah. if it was like literally pushing. So our doula had said the, um, you know, you'll probably feel the castor oil effects for that first hour of labor. And so we were still in that first hour. Mm. And so I was like, okay, okay. But, um, but Dave, bless him. You know, he, he saw a change in me that I didn't see. Like he saw right. my, like he saw me get into like a more determined working mode in my uh -huh. face. And so he called my doula and he called my sister and he got everybody to, um, you know, just, just in motion. And so my sister was going to come watch the boys so that we could get to the hospital around, you know, when, when contractions are around five, right. five minutes. And my first, my first vaginal birth was 14 hours. So that's what I was expecting you know, mm -hmm. somewhere around 12 hours or so for this one. And by the time my doula got there 30 minutes later, I was crawling <laughs> on the floor and she said, well, let's just see how you're doing. And I was like, I must've looked like, like, like the <laughs> devil because I said, we are going to the hospital <laughs> while I'm crawling. And, yeah. uh, and then, and then I had a contraction while she was like right there. And she's like, Whoa, like you're pushing Morgan Whoa. and we need to go to the hospital. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> I was like, okay, okay, let's go. And yeah. um, so, you know, the next we had, that was one contraction, the next contraction in between that next contraction, we got dressed and, and then the next, that contraction happened. And then the next one, these are about two or three minutes apart. Really at this point. close. Yeah. I'm like crawling to the end of my door of my bedroom and I had another contraction at the top of the stairs. And then after that one was done, I walked down my flight of stairs and I got to the front door and I had another contraction. And by then the, my doula, um, Bridget, she said, you're not going to make it to the hospital. We have to have this baby here. <laughs> okay. Oh so, Dave calls. Yeah. Dave calls 911 and you know, Fairfax County has an amazing, um, amazing fire 
system set up. And so we were expecting them within seconds and, and they, they did, they probably got there five minutes later from our call. Wow. And that's fantastic. They, um, they're really, they're really fast. And, but I had already had the baby by then. Oh I, no I, He way. was out looking for, yeah, he was out looking for them to show up and I had the baby like one contraction later. Oh, oh my God. Corey comes out. So he missed the birth. He, he did. He was outside like getting the ambulance and the fire truck. Come on, come on. And, <laughs> and so Bridget's in there and she's like, Morgan, your baby's coming. Catch your baby. And I was like, Oh, and so I, oh. I reached down and I catch, I was on my hands and knees. I reached down and caught my cotter and she was still fully inside the amniotic fluid uh, or the She sac. was born in call. Oh, yeah. She had not, so there was cool. no water rupturing or anything. So she was fully inside her sack. And, um, and Bridget had said, that was the doula. She said, she's inside your amniotic sac. Like you need to open that up. And so I remember like opening it up and having the water come out around her and like fall to the floor. We had gotten some towels down and then she screams and I just bring her up into my, you know, onto my chest and hold her and she's bright Mm -hmm. and pink and everything is fine. And I, I felt wonderful. It was such, such a great experience. There was no scariness to it. I wasn't worried about being at home. I felt really in control of, of the entire process. I knew what was happening. I knew my body was working the way it was supposed to work. And so I wasn't, I wasn't worried about the pain. I didn't even, I mean, it, there was a lot of, of pain, but it wasn't like pain, right? It wasn't like someone was pinching. It was, it was intentional work. Um, And so it really, it really honed me in on what was happening and it was just amazing and i loved every minute of it and so i'm holding her on my chest and two minutes later nine big firemen (laughs) come right in on the labor floor and i'm like uh, i'm like i'm naked right i'm naked i'm breastfeeding (laughs) because i'm taking off my bra at that point i'm breastfeeding I'm just sitting there like against the coat closet. <laughs> and your husband's probably There's like, ah. Dave's, Dave's there, right? He's right next to me at that point. And these, like, it has to be nine or so. It was definitely a full fire truck and an ambulance. And it's all men and they all walk in. And I was like mortified. <laughs> like, oh my God. <laughs> so everything about my, my like toned, intact, powerful, in control birth just goes out the, went out the window yeah. <laughs> yeah and and so we we uh they they got me a blanket so I covered up and they were like ready to cut the cord and I said let's just hold let's just hold off on a minute and they did they let me hold off on uh, cutting the cord Beautiful. and we let it uh, like all the blood drain out and we um I breastfed. I made sure we got that in. And then eventually my, again, Bridget, she's, she was so good. Cause she just kept a really good awareness of everything that was happening in the situation. And she said, mm-hmm. you know, you haven't delivered the placenta yet. So we need to go to the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, Oh, right. So, you know, in the, in the big transition, I had lost my powerful intact mode of, of doing what I knew I needed to do. And I had switched to like, covering up my body and all that, you know? So yeah, which I is didn't, I wasn't kind of in the zone like telling if you think about that, yeah. that's like really yeah. like when you're vulnerable like that, you're like, I forget that I have this other part of birth that I need to take care of, you know, because you're just so protective of yourself. Right. Right. Yep. So we walked out into the ambulance and I did, I walked to the ambulance, um, holding her and, and we got there and we had like a 20 minute ride. At some point in that ride, I thought I needed to get the placenta out, but I couldn't, right? I was there by myself. Mm. I didn't know these people. I just wasn't, I felt too vulnerable to be safe. able to do it there. Yeah. So we get to the hospital and the R, the ER decides they don't need me, right? I'm not an emergency at this point. So they take me up to labor and delivery. And the doctor that I had, that I had seen earlier the day before, right? Cause they're on a 24 hour shift. She, she's the one that's still on call. And she said, okay, well, we have to get the placenta out. But she was doing this in a very rushed, not pleasant way. Like she was upset with me because I didn't Uh, listen to her earlier uh, on like getting, mm. you know, and now I'm coming in by an ambulance and 
And she, I could tell she was mad. And she said, we can do this here or we can do it in surgery. And I said, well, let's do it here. Right. Like, yeah. I don't need to go into surgery if I don't need to. You can give me an IV, put a little Pitocin in me and and let's go. Like, I, I know that's how you, you do that to get the placenta out a little bit. And at this point, there's no issue with uterine rupture because the baby's already out. So Pitocin should be fine. But that is not what happened. What happened? Like I said, yeah, we'll do it here. And the next thing you know, she sticks her entire hand in me and <gasps> all the way into my uterus. And I am in so much pain. Oh. And she rips out the placenta. Oh. And with it, she ripped open my uterus. <gasps> and and it was, it, I screamed. It hurt so much. And and my and I I handed Corey, who's my my little girl, I handed her over to Dave at that point. And Bridget was just floored. She uh, took, I, she tells me this afterwards because I passed out. I'm sure you were she, in shock. She, I, I must've been. Yeah. She went over and went out of the room and yelled to get help, even though the doctor was in there. And the, uh, there was another doctor that was nearby. It was the anesthesiologist who came in and she said, no, 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 we're not doing this here. We're going into surgery. My doula took a picture of my blood pressure or my heart, whatever it is, the blood pressure monitor at the time, mm-hmm. I was at 50 over 20. And then I'm sure um, your heart rate was through the roof. It was, yeah, it must've been. So you were it was, in shock. Yeah, it was bad. Um, so they, they took me back to surgery and, and I did come back when I was in surgery. And I remember hearing, I remember feeling pain, like they were moving my, my legs all around. And I was telling them like, you're hurting me, you're hurting me, get me under, you're hurting me. And <sighs> I mean, I had had five DNCs by this point in my life. So I knew what they were supposed to feel like, which is easy, right? They're not supposed to hurt at all. And she was be under and I wasn't. And so I was telling them like, you're hurting me. And I remember it was either the anesthesiologist or the nurse. I I couldn't see who was next to me, but they were saying, she's not under, stop. She's not under. (sighs) And so finally I did get under and I had to have a big blood transfusion because of all the, the blood loss blood that I had because of your yeah. uterus. Yeah. And then they, and then they stitched me up and stitched and your I uterus? went into yep, whatever they had to do. <laughs> I don't, I don't even know what they did, but I still have my uterus. It's still in there. Which is great. Um, yes. Yeah. And, um, and so they, they fixed whatever they needed to fix that same doctor fixed whatever they needed to fix. And, uh, and I went to recovery and I woke up maybe four or five hours later and it was my doctor that was on, on, uh, on call by then. And he had said, you're lucky you still have your uterus. And I was like, well, I shouldn't have been in this situation to begin with, you know, but um, I definitely shouldn't have had a hand like go into me the way that it did. But I, yeah. 18 hours later, I walked out of that hospital and I went home. Like I was discharged. I felt fine. The blood transfusion worked wonders. Yeah. Um, Sure, you know, I feel better. Yeah. And now two out, you know, two years later, I'm allowed to donate blood too. So I do regularly because of that, you know, and I did before, but now I, I totally recognize that need and do it. But, but I look back at my birth story and I think, I think about the home birth, you know, and I, I don't really think about what happened at the hospital too much, but I do think yeah. about how amazing that home birth was and how, how wonderful it was to have the people near me that were fully it was a yes. team, you know, yes. everyone that was there was there for me and it was an amazing team and, and it was just an amazing birth and, yeah. and I loved it. You know, I knew I could do that. I knew I could do yeah. a, a medicated vaginal birth and, and I did. And it was, um, man, it was awesome. Um, yeah. And medicated vaginal birth and call too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh man, that is so amazing. And you know, what you said, you know, you, you hold on to the home birth, you hold on to that experience. And I think sometimes we have to hold on to those experiences. I had kind of a really wonky uh, experience. I don't know if I've talked much about, I need to like do an episode and talk about my postpartum, but (laughs) after I had my son, my VBAC, my body went into some weird shock too. And I like kept passing out actually. And and we don't really know to this day. Like I didn't bleed externally or internally, but we don't really know what happened. And that's been really, it's really frustrating to me to like mm-hmm. know that. And it's there. It's in my mind, just like this hospital experience. And obviously this insane <laughs> uh, u- uterine issue, placenta issue yeah. that shouldn't have happened, like you said. But, you know, it's 
it's in your mind, but then you're holding on to this over here. And that's what I do. I hold on to my V back uh, because I do still wonder what happened, whatever. And you're like, yeah, this shouldn't have happened in the first place, but I'm holding on to this V uh, to this H back technically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, H back. And that is sometimes where we just have to go. We just have to hold on to to the good. We have to hold on to the mm-hmm. good because there is so much good that outweighs potentially, you know, the bad. And so, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm sorry your yeah. husband missed it. I know. <laughs> he he did. He walked in like right afterwards. And and then He's my like, sister what? came right after the fireman to to watch the kids. So <laughs> but it I mean it, it all worked out. It was great. Yeah. Even the kids got to um the boys got to see her before we went to the hospital. And yeah. my older son, Zach, he was he was just wonderful. He came over and just kind of connected with her right away. And and then Cooper, who was five at the time, he, he's like, oh, fire trucks. Fire trucks. <laughs> like, That's I, cool. Awesome. Fire trucks. <laughs> Can I go back to bed? I was like, yep, go ahead. Yeah, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was, I love um, it. It was neat. It was perfect. It was a yeah. perfect home birth, even as unexpected as it was. It was, it was wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you. And yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about AFI, which is the f- amniotic fluid, because you you were getting into the space of like, oh, well, they're getting concerned, like, oh, let's admit you, you're at nine, oh, let's you know, like, or a se- I think you were at seven, maybe when they were like, oh, let's admit. They you. started at nine. Yeah. Okay, the first they did day, start it at nine. Like, you're at, you're at nine. Let's yeah. admit you. Yeah, yeah. And okay. I said no. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad my memory is not too far off. <laughs> um, you got it. But yeah, so let's talk about that because something that can happen and and I don't it doesn't always happen but it can happen when we're doing non-stress tests or things like this very common in the end is they are paying attention to this AFI and sometimes that is one of the factors that pushes people to um being induced that and I don't put not push like reluctant reluctantly, like just like it it's the ticket for induction for a lot of providers. And so let's talk about that. And you you love numbers and you talk about like five, five point five. A lot of providers will even say five, five to twenty-five. And twenty-five is is high. So after twenty-five, we're looking at a high fluid, which is also another concern for providers mm-hmm. if we have too mm-hmm. much fluid, right? But um after 24 weeks of pregnancy, it's it's most common for them to measure a, an AFI. Like they usually don't pay attention to it before 24 weeks, but they sometimes do after. And it is normal for it to be anywhere between that five, five to 25. And so the question is, okay, say you're at six, say you're at seven. What do we do? Do we have to induce? No, no, we don't. You are proof of that. We do not have to induce. And then what can we do to maybe, maybe help with the amniotic fluid? Are there ways? And you mentioned, you know, drinking Gatorade and water and definitely increasing your fluid. That can make a huge difference. We've had, we've had um, a client go in and she was actually at, it was like six, like just above five. And she was like, oh, I just want to go home just tonight. I'll come back tomorrow. Obviously I'll come back in if baby's not very active or anything like that. And she went home and she drank magnesium, like mag calm and a lot of fluids. And she went back in and it had, it had gone up. It was just above seven. So not a ton, right. But it had gone up and they're like, Oh, okay. And she's like, I feel good about this. And she kept doing that. And she, she kept going in for non-stress tests and fluid checks. And fortunately it continued to stay just fine. And then sometimes it doesn't, and we don't, we don't know exactly why, but hydration is super helpful for upping amniotic fluids and, and salt can help us retain that a little bit, but yeah. And then getting actual IV fluids. Did they ever offer you to get like any IV fluids or anything like that? When did that have been helpful? Huh? Yeah. Yeah, they didn't. And I didn't even think about it. You're right. That would have been really helpful. Yeah. So sometimes, sometimes when we're ingesting through our mouth, we don't maybe retain uh, the fluid as much, but sometimes via IV, 
we can. And it can be really helpful if we're dehydrated because like I, I've been dehydrated before and I'm just like, I'm drinking, I'm drinking, I'm drinking, but I, it's not like seeming to help. But then I've gotten into the um, Instacare and got an IV and it was like, boom, like night and day feels so much better. And that can right. really improve um, getting an IV fluid. And so you can just say, Hey, like, I want to get an IV fluid. I want to get some fluids. And then sometimes, sometimes amniotic fluid being low can be caused by underlying conditions, uh, maybe like high blood pressure, or maybe if they're a diabetic patient. And, you know, I actually don't know exactly if gestational diabetes can affect it, but I would assume probably, but treating these and and checking in with blood sugars and um, making sure our blood pressure is good, that can also help our fluid levels and our hydration um, just by kind of checking in and making sure there aren't any pre-existing things. And then if we have, if we have moms that are dropping dramatically, like by five number, you know, five points or whatever, that could be something where we just do bed rest. We just chill, just mm-hmm. don't do anything to exert our body. And then of course, like, except for like eating and going to the bathroom and showering and taking care right, of right. ourselves, <laughs> but we're not like out and about going to Chuck E. Cheese, right? Like, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean going to Chuck E. Cheese lowers your amniotic fluid. I'm just saying like, <laughs> we are literally like doing nothing. And that can sometimes help increase amniotic fluid as well. And of course, staying hydrated. And then diet, diet, we like getting more lean protein and whole grains and really fresh fruits and vegetables that can also, there, there's not a ton of like really heavy evidence within this, but there's some evidence that shows that it can impact your amniotic fluids, which is kind of crazy, right? Like you're like, oh, food, but hydration and stuff comes through food and it gives back to our body. So anyway, so those are some of, there's, there's others out there and everything, but those are some tips on how to raise amniotic fluid and, and help. And like you said, like you felt very comfortable, very comfortable where you are yes and so yep. that's, mm-hmm. that's still another leading factor where we always have to check in with our gut always 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 morgan says okay i'm feeling good about this i know the research i know the numbers i'm a numbers gal i feel good i feel good about this and look what happens yep. right like, yep. but it is hard and you know you kind of i would love to know any opinion that you have or anything that you would like to share because it is really hard. You spoke about it earlier, talking, having that conversation and, and where your research started and where learning how to advocate for yourself, which you did very much so. I mean, it would have been really easy for you to schedule a cesarean at 37 weeks, or it would have been really easy for you to schedule a cesarean at 39 or 40 or, you know, but any tips that you have for our listeners to, to really truly advocate for yourself. And again, we, we talked about, we don't want to go in with our punching gloves we don't want to be punching and be combative and back and forth, but we want to have that really healthy relationship and saying like, this is what your practice of you know, obstetricians and gynecologists says, let's have this conversation. Yeah. I, I, it was a hard conversation and I would say it was not one that ended in one appointment, right? It was one that right. it was, a, it was, and and that actually kind of made it hard too, because you've got a 30 minute appointment and you have to stop this conversation and start it a week or two weeks later. Yes. Um, but every time I really thought ahead of time, it was not a spur of the moment discussion point for me. It was one that was planned yes. and I wrote down exactly what I wanted to discuss beforehand so that we could, we could really have that conversation and we could get through it in the amount of time that, that he had available. Cause I, I do want to still be respective or respect, Absolutely. you know, I want to respect his schedule. I, I want to respect the other women that are there that need mm-hmm. care as well. And I also wanted to hear from him on why he wouldn't do Pitocin, why he was worried yeah. about uh, like wanting to be so far in front of 40 weeks or not wanting mm-hmm. to go past 41 weeks. And, and they, you know, I, I got answers to those things and some of them I agreed with and some of them I didn't. Yeah. Um, but really these decisions on pushing, pushing the C-section back, the C-section date back to 41 weeks, he, he ended up being okay with after all the discussion and yeah. me saying, look, I don't care about scheduling. I don't care if it's first thing in the morning. Great that you're assuming that I care, 
that I want to get in on a schedule at 8 a.m. But I, but I don't, I don't care about that. If it has to be three o'clock in the afternoon, whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. I want it to be at 41 weeks. That's more important to me than at 8 a.m. Scheduling of stuff, you know, and, and I did go to the other doctor and get a second opinion, but I had to pay that $300 for that appointment, you know? Yeah. Right. Right. I love that you mentioned that, like, it's so easy on both parties, on the birthing parents side and and the provider side to just assume, right? To just mm-hmm. assume like, oh, well, don't you like, you don't want to fast all day because when you have a scheduled cesarean, you have to fast. So you want an 8 a.m. cesarean, don't you? You know, but it's so important to say like what you mean and where you're at. So, so there is no just assuming it's just, they know, they know where right. you're at. And right. I mean, the same thing for providers. Um, I, I encourage them to not just assume that the patient wants something, but also talk about where they're at. So mm-hmm. like you said, you could have that conversation and be like, I can see that. I can see that 100%. This is where I'm at. And then you guys can have that meeting ground. But right, yeah, right. so important. It's really hard, you guys. It's really, really hard when you are in that space because we never... We don't want to go against a medical provider. We don't want to fight. We don't want to say you're wrong. <laughs> like that's just not that's not the position we ever want to be in. But if there's something that's deeply, you know, in your gut, and you're like, no, this is not what I found out, or no, this is not what I'm okay with, have that conversation. And I encourage you to have that conversation because that is going to better your relationship with your provider. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Well, thank you so much. Thank Thank you so much for being here with us and sharing your beautiful story. I'm sorry that that did happen at the hospital, but I'm so glad that you were able to leave pretty quickly and get back to your family um, at home. Yeah, me too. I I did not like that. But I I mean, when I look at all of everything that happened, it was a wonderful story. And, uh, And I've got my baby girl, our family's complete, and I'm just in awe of what a woman's body can do. Yeah, absolutely. We are true women of strength. Absolutely. No matter matter how we birth, we are women of strength. And I I full on believe that. So thank you again so much. And um, yeah, have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too. Interested in sharing your VBAC story on the podcast? Submit your story at the vbaclink.com slash share. For information on all things VBAC, including online and in-person VBAC classes, the VBAC blog, and Julie and Megan's bios, head over to thevbaclink.com. Congratulations on starting your journey of learning and discovery with the VBAC link.